The following message was given by Mark Beckton on Sunday, November 6th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Go ahead and be seated, and while you're being seated, reach for your Bibles. And find Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Isn't it remarkable? On the Sunday when you fall back, you may have woken up at the same time, but just feel so much more refreshed. And I'm glad because we're going to cover a lot of material in a short period of time. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer. You find it, and if you're familiar with it, you can say it by heart, but I want you to look at the text as we say it together. Verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I hadn't been on staff long with you, serving with you. Um, I was teaching a class on prayer. And one who had attended sent me a text. I got their permission. This was from a few years ago. But he writes, I was in the class you taught on prayer at Redemption Hill. Uh, you told me to let you know if there was something you could be praying about for me. And I've come up with something. I'm about to be a dad. And he has this wide-eyed emoji. He says, my wife will be 37 weeks on Saturday, and the reality of it all is hitting me. I'm excited to be a dad, and I'm not so much fearful of that. But the idea of stewarding this gift that God's given has been weighing on me. The world is weird, and I just want to lead my family well. And I have no idea how to do that. Now it's a sweating emoji. So yeah, if you could join me in praying for this new chapter of life that's coming, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks much. When I read that, I, I breathed and I wanted my brother to breathe because I wanted to know, just as he is so nervous about being a dad, I wanted him to remember what a good heavenly father he has. That's the reason we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, often when it's taught, it's a how-to sermon. How to pray as Jesus instructs us to pray. In fact, I, I wrote a book in 2013 on praying through the Lord's Prayer. But even now, years later... I'm just blown away. Everything in Scripture directs our attention to who God is and who we are in Him. And even this prayer in its how-to nature actually just screams of what amazing Father we have. So that's what we're going to look at today as we walk verse by verse and sometimes word by word through this prayer. In doing so, we'll look at God's nature his priorities, how he's an amazing provider. We'll look at his forgiveness, his protection, all those things because he's such a good father. 
So with that said, let's just start with verse 9. Let's talk about God's nature as it says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The very first word, our, should jumpstart our thinking. It's not my. Now, when you go to Psalm 23, and um, one scholar particularly sees the Psalms as poetic liturgical prayers, and Psalm 23 being David's prayer, he starts, the Lord is my shepherd. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I love the way Christ teaches us to actually begin with our, because my nature, I feel our nature, is to immediately see God as our glorified concierge. Here is my need, here is my want, need it. I'm confessing up front, that's the way I am with panicked prayer. But he says begin with our. Because when you start with our, you realize even more of the Father's nature. Today we prayed uh, for Robert, who is in Japan. And there are brothers and sisters that are there. Many of us stay in touch with David and Kara Plogel and Chad. And there are believers there. Many stay in touch with Adrienne in Central Asia. And there are believers there trying to live out the gospel. And as we pray this morning, there are followers gathered all over the world. As you pray your individual prayer, I pray mine. The Father in his almighty, all-knowing, ever-present ability hears them all at once and yet can distinguish particularly what is right and good for you in the answer to that prayer that will glorify him. And this all-powerful, ever-present, almighty God is the one who says, call me Father. How amazing is that? It was remarkable to the disciples because you have here in, in Matthew's account our Father when, when John talks about Christ and when Mark's gospel talks about Christ, speaking about God, you'll hear it differently. In, in Mark's gospel, God is referred to 50 times, but only three times in that biography is he called Father. Yet you go to John's account, John's biography of Christ, when you hear him having Christ talk about God over a hundred times, he mentions Father. Goes back in Mark's account, the only time he mentions him as father is in the intimate gathering of the twelve. He could see, hear, grasp the endearing tones of Christ when he talked about God as a father, a caring father. And for my dad, that would have been hard to see. My dad didn't even become a follower of Christ till 19. His biological dad was an angry alcoholic. And dad would seep out over time the abuses he experienced as a child. And so for dad as a 19-year-old to begin thinking about God as a caring father, he had to picture him as the caring father he wished he had experienced and then found him to be more than he ever hoped. I had a great dad because he longed to be like God, his heavenly father. But I can tell you this, my heavenly father is far greater even than my loving, caring, earthly dad. So before I ever approach him in prayer, I'm in awe of his tender care. As the Almighty says, call me Father, who's in heaven. Now this is significant. 
A little bit later, we'll get to John chapter 17. What you'll find in John 17, the night before Christ is crucified, is this model that he's given us, he'll even model it there in a personal prayer. But when you talk about our Father who is in heaven, when you and I pray, it's, it's nice to picture not only what his nature is like uh, as a father, but also what his nature is like where he is, where he reigns. So if you could do this just for a moment, so it's a great exercise. Think of two or three things that are so overwhelming right now that you can't find answers or you don't know where the supply is coming from. Think of those two or three things that you would like to, to ask the Father who is in heaven. And picture what it would be like to hand deliver your request to him. Because in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. In, Roman, in Revelation 21, you get a picture of the place being prepared. So if you are hand-delivering your prayer to where the Father is, this is what you would see along the way. The walls surrounding heaven are 20 stories tall and made of jasper. They're supported by 12 foundations. Each foundation is made of precious gems. Each wall has three gates. Each gate is cut from a single pearl. And as you walk through an opened gate, you'll notice it never shuts at night. We lock our doors. We hit our fobs to make sure our cars stay locked because we want no intruders, no intruders in heaven. Only the adopted walk through. On transparent streets of gold beside facilities of transparent gold. And when the glory of God reflects off this, you know there'll never be night there, only day. And the sounds are different. There's no weeping, no crying, no mourning, nor pain. And the singing. Revelations 4 and 5 and 19 give you some of the grandest worship experiences you can imagine. The sounds are so different. And now looking at the, the surroundings and realizing you're approaching the king who reigns over this you now look at your list and realize there's nothing on my list he cannot do. And even if he doesn't answer it the way I wish he would, I rest because I know he is good and holy and it will be right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the beautiful thing about Hallowed. When you talk about his care as a father or his clout as a king, when you look at the word Hallowed, it is actually the verb form of the noun holy. And when you, you get uh, into deeper understanding of this word holy, it has a root that means separate. It has a root of that root, which means to cut. It's so separate. There's a, a divide. There's a cut between. R.C. Sproul writes on this and says, no, when you talk about God being cut, he's not cut away. He's a cut above. In every way. And when you and I approach him in prayer, we are approaching a caring father with the clout of a king whose nature will never change. How privileged are we? It's, it's like the, the old Roman story. An emperor had come back to Rome from a great victory. And as was the Roman tradition, the main street was filled because all the troops would come in with the spoils and the emperor would be last. The emperor's family has a box on the side where they get to watch all the proceedings. And the emperor-to-be, the emperor's son, a young boy is in the box watching. And as soon as his 
dad came in sight. He bolted from the box, ran toward his dad, only to be stopped by a burly, worn legionary. He said, boy, you can't approach him. Don't you know who that is? That's your emperor. He said, well, the man in the chariot may be your emperor, but he's my dad. And he tells me I can run to him any time at all. Do you understand what a gift we have to approach our Father in heaven who is holy? Now, once I've gone through that exercise, I'm ready to get to my stuff, but the Father's not ready for me to get to my stuff yet because he wants us to be focused on his priorities. And listen to me. A good, kind father knows it is important to also think about his priorities because what is dear to him becoming dear to us actually causes us to rest in him. So the very next thing we begin to look at, he talks about now in verse 10, where it says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Priority one is his kingdom. So when, when Christ talks about kingdom, the kingdom of God, how does he picture this? How does he describe this? There, there are multiple times in Luke where he says the kingdom of God is like. I'm just going to identify two. The first one comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, where it says, Now when he was asked, Christ was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. There are other translations that will say, The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. But I do like this particular translation within you. Because it reminds me of John chapter 14, verse chapter 14 through 16. Jesus teaches us the night before he's crucified on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And he says of the Holy Spirit, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you and I will be in you. So when you and I begin praying about the kingdom of God, one of the first things to start looking at is not the territorial spread of believer upon believer upon believer, but the reign of Christ in your life. I was fortunate for the Father to open my eyes at six to see my sin and to... Lay hold of his grace. Uh, I just praise him for that. But I knew at that age I, I wanted all of him, so my surrender was full. Which meant in, in my life, even as a six-year-old, there are different places where I had my flags up. This is the way I wanted to do life. This is the way I wanted to obey or disobey. This is all about me and my flag and my territories. But upon salvation, my flag came down in all the territories of my life, and the flag of Christ came up. The new king had come in. But that was at 6. Today I'm at 60. And I'm telling you, there are multiple times throughout my life from then to today and from today forward where there will be areas and seasons where I will pull down the flag of Christ, raise back my flag because I want to be in control of this aspect of my life. And the Father is so kind to say, let's, let's talk about praying about my kingdom 
reigning in you. But also, one of the ways that that becomes beautiful is with his kingdom being spread through you. In Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, another, the kingdom of God is like from Christ. He talks about the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that was planted, becomes a tree, and the birds of the air come to nest within it. It's remarkable, though, that on the week before Christ is crucified, in John chapter 12, verse 24, he says this, unless a grain of wheat dies, it produces nothing. And he's speaking of his own life. The beauty of this seed is Christ and who he is and what he has done. There's also a mustard seed of faith that is talked about. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it talks about God granting us, gracing us with faith to believe. So the gospel itself is this wonderful seed that grows into this great tree so that others who are coming to him globally, locally, are a part. Oh, my goodness. And even as we pray today that we as a body are engaged with him in the field toward that end. That's the reason in Philemon 6, it teaches us, I pray that you're active in sharing your faith, that you may then understand every good thing you have in Christ. It's in the field more than in the classroom that what we learn moves from theory to reality. From on my mind to engraved on my heart. And so Christ has us to pray about the spread of his kingdom through us because of the coming of his kingdom to us. Robert has already talked about this beautifully as he walked us through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You go back to the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. The grammar of that word come is an aorist form that basically means a one-time event that has ongoing implications. The king is coming. And you and I are assured of that. But until he comes, we are in the field with him as we keep gauging our heart with him to make certain he is Lord in all that we say and do. And we get to be engaged and involved with all that he is doing. What a gift that is. Which is why we now get to our daily bread. If these things are on our mind, it really does affect what we'll be asking for for our needs. So let's go now to, oh, sorry, I jumped. What about his will? What about his will? I know there are volumes out there on the praying and knowing the will of God. Uh, let me just take you to John chapter 17 real quick. All right, find your, stay where you are, but go find John 17. Again, this is the night before Christ is being crucified. He's teaching us in Matthew 6, this is how you should pray. In John 17, it's not a crowd around him being taught. God in his kindness has preserved Christ's personal prayer. This is basically him praying and us overhearing him pray. Look how he starts talking and praying in John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In that one two verse portion, you've got him talking to his father who is in heaven about the father's kingdom and will. 
And the beauty of his will is that Christ glorify him. Now, throughout this prayer in John 17, nine times he will mention, whether in verb or noun form, the glory of God. So if you and I want to pray according to the will of God, it's that we see the glory of God because that was Christ's prayer. So we're talking about the glory of God. What are we praying when we ask to see the glory of God? Whether it is in the Old Testament Hebrew or New Testament Greek, it, it basically means the words do to see God's greatness. Now, in the Old Testament, it was through the events that left them in, in awe of God, of his activity in the grand. In the New Testament, it's also through the experiences that were personal that leave you in awe of his tenderness to you, grace to you, that leave you in awe of his glory. So whether the grand or whether the personal, it leaves you breathless over the nature and the greatness of God. That's when you and I worship and our obedience becomes a reaction and a response to what we have seen and known. Pray to see the glory of God, but also to know God intimately. Go to verse 3 now in John 17. He continues praying. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Greek word for know there is gnosko, and it means to know intimately through shared experiences. It's what Paul prays in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. The previous verses about his great accolades before Christ, and he calls them all trash. His aim, his longing, his heart's cry is to intimately know Christ. And he does so, he says, and through the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him intimately. So when you're praying the will of God, you're praying according to Christ's prayer for you. That you would know God intimately. And in knowing him intimately, it, it moves then to being conformed to Christ. Uh, let me show you how. Uh, let's see. I've been pastoring now for 39 years. And in that period of time, there's been opportunities where I was invited to a couple and their 50th wedding anniversary. And it's always a fun process because they'll have somewhere on display their wedding when they were married 50 years earlier then they took another picture for now way way they are 50 years later and then you walk over to those and talk to them about them and you watch and listen and they don't let each other finish sentences and you're, you're getting the story from here 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 you're, you're playing ping pong and tennis as they talk and they laugh and they don't even finish the story because they know the story they lived it you also look at the photographs from here to here, and it's remarkable. They not only have mannerisms when they talk that seem so similar to each other, but from this photograph to this photograph, even some of their facial features have changed to look like each other. For which I've often apologized to Lori. <laughs> In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, sweet truth. God foreknew you and predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Foreknew is the same word that is used by Christ in this prayer. There's just a prefix difference. He knew you well in advance, according to Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, and he knew you intimately. And he ordained you conformed to Christ. 
So, as you and I pray for God's will, it is to know him intimately because that's Christ's prayer for you. Which leads us now to finally get to our stuff. Can you see how this would shape then how we approach Christ with our stuff? Approach our Father with our stuff. But we, we need to do that now. So go to this, verse 11. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, up front, the very first word give is written in the grammar as an imperative command. Uh, this is a charge. Give me today. And I, I don't mind telling you there are some days that I would rather say, Lord, hide me from today. But this is a powerful charge. Give me this day. I got to see this lived out in my dad. Um, about a month before his passing, they opened him up because it was a back issue and they looked at it wasn't his back. He was eaten with cancer. So they just sewed him up, sent him home with hospice. The church I served here was so loving to let me spend the last three weeks with him. However, the night in the hospital was probably longer than the three weeks because Dad, who was always keen and sharp, was hallucinating. And so the only way I could calm him was to say, Dad, let's pray. And immediately he said, yes, come here. <laughs> Grab my hands like this, and I can still remember him praying. Father, just tell us what you want, and let us take the lead. Father, please, let us take the lead. And, and there it was. He, he was praying not as a victim of the day, but as a victor over the day because of Christ. And so there is a sense when you say, give us this day, it is a charge in order to glorify Christ in the day. But give us this day our daily bread. So let's talk about this word daily. Until a few decades ago, Greek scholars felt that this word daily uh, appeared only here and in Luke's account in all Greek writings until a few decades ago. And a few decades ago, they unearthed a, a papyrus, and, and they read this papyrus, and they found this word daily. It wasn't on a governmental document. It was on a woman's shopping list. I needed these things today. There are no preservatives at that time, no real preservatives. So their getting of materials and getting of things had to be for the day. And it's a huge direction for my prayers, huge direction for your prayers, because often I find that the weight or the worry of my prayers are not over this day. They are over the what-ifs of next week or the what-ifs of next month or the what-ifs or the possibilities of where this could go a year from now. I'm a great planner, which is a great help on some cases, but when it comes to worry, it doesn't help me at all because I can see where it might go. The Father says, why don't we just talk about today? And if you go back into chapter 6 of Matthew, you go toward the end, he says, because each day has its own evil. Let's just talk about today. And candidly, when you pray, that's enough to say grace over. You will know your day. So pray over everything you know you're going through before you get into it. But what about the things that ambush you? Believe me, I, I've been there. There have been times I've come home and told Lori, I, I really think the Father 
had planned a day that I didn't know it was planned. Because everything I had on my list, I couldn't get to. What happens when you're ambushed like that? I learned this from a missionary to China in the turn of the uh, 19th century, 18th century, uh, 20th century, around 1905. <laughs> Her name was Bertha Smith, overwhelmed with all that she felt crushed by. He took up 2 Corinthians 9, 8, where it says, May God give all grace to you and abound to you so that at all times, in all things, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. Which meant when I got ambushed, I had prayed through that this morning. Lord, you told me you would give me everything I need for every situation I would face for your good work. Therefore, I didn't know this specifically. You did, so I thank you that I'm already supplied. Give us this day our daily bread. So let's talk about bread just for a moment. In the Old Testament, when you find the word bread in the Hebrew, the majority of times it's literal bread. It's what they had to eat. And, and you have to have food. It's a need in your life. When you get to the New Testament, you find it more figurative. When Christ says, I am the bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone. He's using it figuratively for teaching purposes. But whether Old Testament... Uh, literal or New Testament figurative, is still talking about need. So our caring Father wants to, to know that he cares for the provisions, but do you really know what you need? So how do you boil down all this that's swimming in to get to true need to pray for? Well, just use the example from Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter, I believe it's chapter 5, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. He has been crowned king, but now he feels the weight. He's been the prince, thought he could do it all, I'm sure, watch his dad do it, but then suddenly he sits in the chair and thinks, oh, man, this is heavier than I thought. And an angel approaches him and says to him on behalf of the father, ask of me what you want me to give to you. Man, can you imagine what it would be like if the father gave you a blank check? And you begin to process everything to get, because you got one request. You make sure you get the bang for your buck in that request. And so Solomon starts looking about the nature of his dad with God and saw that. He started looking at the, the history of the Jewish people. You go back into this passage and you'll see him walk, walking through the history of the people and processing that and feeling overwhelmed from it all. And looking at it, the biggest bang for his buck was this. He said, would you please give me, your servant, an obedient heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. So when you're overwhelmed with everything to pray and everything to ask, just boil it down. If I could ask the Father one thing, what would it be? And it's remarkable how it hones your bread, what you're asking for. Uh, I'm watching my time. I'll say it quickly. World War II, when uh, it was over with, in Europe, uh, the orphans were plentiful. Orphanages were going up everywhere. And at night, when they would turn out the lights, all the children, or most of them, would just cry. They tried to learn a way to help them. 
And they thought, well, maybe if we leave the light on, they still cried. Maybe if we played music, they still cried. Then they processed, you know, these children didn't know if they were going to get food the next day. So when they went to bed, they gave each of them a piece of bread. As soon as they did, they slept. It is remarkable what happens when you and I have asked the Father for the bread and hand and trust he's given it. Even the most tense moments, you can rest knowing that you can trust him. All right? Because you've watched him love on you through forgiveness. Let's talk about his nature of forgiveness. Now we get to verse 12. If you think this part that we've talked about so far has been kind of weighty and heavy, wait till we talk about forgiveness. Uh, verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I love this from John Stott. He's passed away now, but years ago he's watching television and a British humanist said the following. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Let's talk about the way in the sweet way God forgives and basically says to us, you owe me nothing. That's the reason there are two accounts of the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew and then also there's one in Luke. When you quote this in a large gathering, you get to this portion, I love just to listen because there's a, a pause and a mummering going on because you don't know whether to say forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. Yeah. For me, between the two, I really do like debts. Now, I love trespasses until I understood the context of debts. Here's why. There are five different Greek words for sin in the New Testament. Now, just to be uh, succinct, uh, basically, it, one means you missed the mark. Another means the line's been drawn. You didn't want to, but you, you, the best of your emotions took over, and you crossed the line. Now, this says across the line, and you didn't care the line was there. You just crossed it. And another one says, uh, you don't even believe there's a line there because you don't believe there is a God there. It's that type of sinfulness. And then there's this one for debts. This one for debts basically means it doesn't matter whether you missed the mark, whether you slid across the line unintentionally, whether you did it intentionally, whether you don't care there's a line or not, it doesn't matter. You owe God, who is holy and righteous and just. Owe him what? Confession and repentance, Acts chapter 2. After hearing the gospel, what shall we do? Repent and believe. And I love this from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is a, a, a compound of two words in, in the Greek that mean to say the same. It's that sweet, powerful moment when you come to an agreement with God. He already knew you had sinned. He already knew you crossed the line. But your eyes have been open to this now. And you're in agreement and confess. And there's a sweetness in that confessing, knowing of his forgiveness and feeling that weight of being clean before a holy God. But we get to the harder part of confession. A harder part of forgiveness comes when you say to others, now you owe me nothing. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. C.S. Lewis, I love what he said. He said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Now, I, I, I'm, okay, this is a confession. 
I'd been in ministry for several years, and I had an older pastor sit down with me and loved me enough to confront me. He said, Mark, I just want to tell you, you're not seeing life right. You're not seeing ministry right because you have spiritual cataracts of unforgiveness. Even pastors can have layers of things happen to them over time that create layers of bitterness that become unforgiveness. And so he began to talk with me about how to move beyond that. He said, Mark, here's what I recommend because it's what I've had to do with church folks. I've had to do it with my own family. He said, put a chair in front of you and then imagine the person who has offended you, has hurt you, has wounded you sitting in that chair and you describe to them everything that they've done. Hold nothing back. And describe to them how you have uh, felt about that, how it impacted you. Lay nothing out. Put it all there. And then come to a place where you finally say, but I want you to know you owe me nothing. Now, he said this to me, and this is important. He said, you'll have to say it more than once. Because the first time you say it, you're saying it because I told you you have to say it. And in doing so, you, you really won't mean it. You're doing it because you're supposed to. But say it again and again and again. Till finally you realize you do mean this. Now, what's amazing is he, he taught me this. We talked about earlier about the kingdom of God uh, within you. Christ's spirit within you. He says, in your own nature as a fallen person, you don't have the ability to forgive that way. He said, I know that. I know that personally. He, he said, but you have the spirit of Christ within you, and that is his nature to forgive because you have experienced it from him. And it's a part of you intimately knowing him through this that you get to experience expressing his forgiveness to someone who does not earn it, or deserve it but in your heart you're saying to them you owe me nothing I heard all that and I said but you don't know the people I'm having a time with they'll do it again he said I've got family just like that I have to come back to the chair and do it all over again just like Christ has to do daily with me and so through praying like this, we get back into that intimacy of how amazing God's nature is in his forgiveness to us. One last thing, one last thing. God, help us in temptation. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver, deliver us from evil. I like the way this translation says it, deliver us from evil. However, as some says, the, the evil one. I do wish this translation put the article the in front of it. In the original language, it says, deliver us from the evil. The reason I like that is it's not just the evil individual or entity. We, we know about Satan. But it's also the evil instruments that he employs. He is the father of all lies, according to John 8, 44. So he is a deceiver. So in this... We get to rest in God's protection even when he purposes the temptation we experience. And I know that's hard to hear. But this word for temptation, you'll find that same Greek word in James chapter 1. Uh, in verses 2 through 4 in James 1, it talks about trials that build you. And the word trials in verse 2 is the same word translated as temptation in this passage. 
And the words tempted and tempting in James 1, verses 13 through 14, are the same Greek word translated trial as in verse 2. So we understand the Father will purpose this. He cannot tempt us according to James 1. But what we learn from the Father in Christ's ascension right before in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Which means even though Scripture identifies Satan as the ruler of this age, he's still under God's authority. That's the reason why in Job, when he goes through all of this, that's through Satan's hand. Satan has to get permission before he can do it. So why would the Father purpose the temptations in our life. Well, one is because in James it also talks about resist the devil and he will flee. You know what resistance training is, don't you? It's the pushback. And you begin developing muscles from the pushback. And so the Father is again maturing us, as the Word says in Scripture. He's conforming us to Christ, revealing to us who we are in Christ by even purposing the temptations that we face. So when those temptations come, how do we honor the Father and, and sense that strength and presence? How do we conform to him? Well, let's talk about that just for a moment. Uh, the beauty is that, that we trust the Father to show the way out when the temptation comes. Now, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You will never face a temptation that you cannot step away from. Listen, I, 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 I experienced this with Lori several years ago. Uh, we were in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for a conference. The hotel that we were staying in uh, had a fire alarm. No, it wasn't a fire alarm. It was somebody who began talking through the television. Again, I'm not crazy. Literally, they, they were talking through the television because they, they, the fire alarm went off, and they're telling us to get out of the building through what they were saying on the television. And I'll just tell you up front, if I wasn't married to Lori and if there was really a fire there, I would have died. Because I have no clue. I'm just happy to have a room. We get into a room, and Lori is always the one who looks on the back of the door. This is where your room is. This is where the nearest exit is. So as soon as the alarm goes off, we, we get our robes on. She goes, I know where to go. Okay. So we're heading down that way. And as we are going, we're seeing people go this way. And we're going to where the exit is. They're going this way. And Lori says, no, 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 no. The exit is over here. And it's the funniest reaction. You watch people stop. Process. And some say in, in their action, okay, I'll trust you. Others in their action say, I don't trust you. And go on. I can tell you, even in my own experiences with temptation in my life, I've been the person who has done both. There are times in the midst of temptation the Father brings Scripture to mind. I know he's speaking into me and it lets me just move away. could bring a song that we have sung to mind and I move away. could bring the possible consequences to mind and I walk away. There are other times those things can happen and I am stubborn in my sin. Go on. This is the beauty of Christ as our Father, our King, he will always speak in those moments. 
And in those moments when I have gone and been stubborn, there comes that place again where I go back to the place of forgiveness and have to experience that sweet forgiveness of his through a brokenness and know that his forgiveness is full and sure. All of this because the amazing father we have. Which brings me to a close. You remember the text I opened with? <laughs> Sometimes when, when, when folks say, would you pray for me? I'll just go ahead and pray the text as I'm texted as I pray it. So this is what I sent. I thank you for letting me pray. Quote, Father, thank you that your perfect timing, in your perfect timing, you have purposed the birth of this child. Thank you for the many ways you have revealed your goodness to this new dad, his wife, and family. Thank you for the ways you will use this child to display aspects of your nature. Thank you also for the many hours of fearful, dependent prayer he and his wife will offer you. I praise you in advance for the ways you will answer those prayers beyond what they ask and reveal yourself again as being amazingly good. And Father, as for now, assuring him in his fears that he will many times, just as he will many times, assure his children in their fears. Teach them to cast all their cares upon you, our good Father. And may he sense your presence carrying him. In Jesus' name, amen. Honestly, I could send that to the brother because I found it true of our good Father. Okay. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to who you are as a good father. And Lord, even as we prepare for taking communion, I ask, Father, align our hearts rightly. And Father, may we worship you as we do this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to a message by Mark Beckton, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.